Jesus. So this week, um, we have a uh, we have a hot tub, and uh, I run it like on a natural. You know, there's no 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 bleach, no chlorine, and so part of what I have to do is um, I bought a UV light that I drop into the the hot tub, and it kills all the bacteria and stuff. And um, I bought. That, you know, they have different ratings and, you know, they have some that are made for a hot tub and they're pretty small and they have some that are made for like, I don't know, Cherry Creek Reservoir and that's the one I bought. And uh, I'm like, ain't nothing getting away from this. And uh, so, you know, I, I don't faithfully turn it on uh, and so I hadn't, I hadn't cleaned the hot tub in a little bit and I wanted to get into it. So I was doing my thing and I flipped on this light and uh, I thought to myself, I need to sink this light to the bottom of the hot tub. And so I spent about 10 or 15 minutes using different anchors and weights, tying it to this light. And I didn't think much of it until the next day when I tried to wake up and I couldn't wake up. Um, My eyes were like sealed shut. And I was like, what is going on? And they hurt so bad. And then I remembered, you're not supposed to look at uh, UV light. Uh, And you're definitely not supposed to do it for an extended period of time. So I'm thinking the equivalent was like me staring into the sun for a good half an hour. And... uh, and so my eyes are still a little bit red, and, um, and so I, I, didn't, I couldn't come in, and I, I couldn't, I like, so the other thing about uh, security on your phone, if you have an iPhone and it uses Face ID, um, if your eyes aren't open, it, it won't unlock. I mean, for good reason, so that somebody can't unlock your phone if you're sleeping or something. And so I'm trying to send a message to Larry, and I'm like forcing my eyes open to tell him I'm not going to be here. But anyway, that was neither here nor there. So I, I got to uh, thinking about this, and after I had been thoroughly scolded by my wife with zero sympathy. Uh, and the reason why is because she told me while I was out there, are you wearing the eye goggles? And I was like, no. And... Uh, why am I not wearing these eye goggles? I don't know. I just, you know, because while I'm handling the thing, it's not a particularly bright light. It puts out, it puts out no heat. So the sense of danger wasn't really there, right? But listen to me. I faithfully 100% understand what a UV light is meant to do. That's why I purchased the light. That's why I put it in my hot tub. It's there to, to kill bacteria. I know how it works. I even know that I've like lightly burned my eyes before. And, um, and so none of this really registered into my, my actual behavior. And the reason why I was like, this will preach, is because I think this, um, this is how we treat um, God's word. This is how we treat um, Jesus is Lord. This is how we treat any, any real truths of scripture. We, we know they're there. We agree with them. We endorse them. I mean, I, I understand how the light works. I, I put it in the hot tub. Like, I know this thing functions. And yet, when it comes to that actually bearing out in the reality of my actions, did that play out? No, it, it didn't play out. And um, I think it's really easy when we're covering things in Acts and we see stuff go sideways. And I say things like, guys, even when things don't go the way that you plan, Jesus is still in charge. And that might be exactly where you want, he wants you. And you're like, amen, that's, you know, if I ever find myself there, and then you find yourself there and you treat it like the UV light. It's, it's a truth that you can affirm out there, somewhere in the ether, but when it comes to embracing that in your own life, it, it doesn't, there's no reality there. And, and this is a, a significant issue for us. Um, 
Why is this an issue? Because we tend to be um, people that affirm the truth that Jesus is one to be followed. We like that. We understand it. It's, what, it's the definition of a disciple. Jesus is the one I follow. I give my life. I surrender it to his will. Wherever he leads, I'm going. And then what we do, we promptly turn the other direction on the path we intended all along and stick him in our pocket. We, we're good carriers of Jesus, not good followers of Jesus. We, we like to carry around the truths of God. We like the, the religious belief. You know, I, I own the UV light. I, I, I affirmed what it did, but I didn't. It did bear no actual reality. In, in the, the, the faith is what I actually do. And the faith is what you actually do. And I desperately need you to, to, to understand that that is not a wink and a nod. That will not fly at the judgment seat of Christ. Do you understand this? And, and so that's a big deal. Uh, we cannot just affirm that Jesus is the one who is king and we surrender our lives, yes and amen, and then continue about living life however we choose and hoping that that's going to be okay. And so um, I, I, sometimes I, I, uh, as I'm preparing, I tend to be the kind of person that sees the critical things that happen in the, in the text, meaning it points out all the ways that we don't line up, right? And... Um, Unless I feel like I'm just beating you with the word of God every, every week, I try to walk a pretty middle line. And, um, and this, doesn't, this isn't helpful to our intuition. And here's why. Because it doesn't matter if it's the Bible or a movie that you watch. You will, because of who we are and the way that we operate, we will always put ourselves in the position of the hero. We're never the bad guy. And, uh, right? And so when we read a text like... Acts, and we see how the Pharisees and the Sadducees are treating, which we're seeing how they're treating the the Christians, the church. And we put ourselves in the Christian position and we're like, because we would never identify with these stupid, you know, Pharisees and Sadducees. And yet that, that thing is in us. And it's the exact same thing that causes us to affirm the reality that Jesus is Lord, but not bear it out in our lives. And that thing is called self. It's you. It's you loving you. And affirming you and needing you. And so this morning, uh, the message is called the faithless futility. And there's a phrase that jumps out in this narrative. It jumped out to me. And it comes during um, Gamaliel's um, rebuke to the council. And he's, and he's talking about these other um, rising ups that have, ha- uprisings that have happened. And he says, all of these uh, were claiming to be someone. And, uh, and I think this is the essence of if I was going to um, subtitle most of our uh, autobiographies, it's this. Mitch Giannatala, claiming to be someone. And the false, the false narrative that I am, I am someone that's more important than Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that um, you would help us to um, not just observe something new, not uh, learn something for our brains, but um, that when we're confronted with your truth this morning, that it would challenge us in who we are. Um, Father, we desperately need to um, relinquish our hold of self and our promotion of our way so that we might surrender to you and that you would be Lord of our lives, the Lord of our church, and that we would advance your kingdom in this world. So Father, I pray as we behold you this morning in your word, that you would speak um, only truth. You would bind my lips from air. And um, Father, we need 
um, your help to do this. So I ask, and I don't get tired of asking. The only way this is worthwhile is if you give us ears to hear your truth, eyes to behold what it's right and glorious and beautiful, and hearts um, that line up with who you are, that are soft to receive what you would say. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's uh, read through this morning. I'll um, read uh, verses 27 through 42. That'll get us through the end of um, chapter 5. And um, if you weren't here the primer or you forgot it, I just want to remind you, um, Jesus' name literally means that, that he is, God is our salvation. He is our salvation. And this is going to be an important statement because there's an avoidance here of, of that reality. Okay? That um, Jesus is the one who's in charge. He's the one who has authority. He's the one in power. So let's um, see how this bears out. It says, um, are you there? Chapter 5, verse 27. All right, good. Here we go. And when they brought them, that is the uh, apostles before them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them, saying, now we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. They won't, even, they won't even say the name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now when they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee of the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in high honor by all the people, stood up and he gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him, and he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and they came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And so they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them, and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Okay. So, um, we're going to deal with uh, sort of the first uh, paragraph there through 32, and there's the transition there uh, in how they respond to what Peter has to say, and the final is the council, um, the Gamaliel offers. And so the, the thesis essentially this morning is this. Um, faith in God is incompatible with a focus on self. You, you cannot believe in you, hope in you, and also say, I hope in God. Because literally, faith is to put your trust in another or in something else. Okay? And so, for as long as your hope is in you or your faith is in you or some portion of it is in you or on you, it's incompatible with the reality that my faith is in God. And, uh, and those two um, cannot coincide and co coexist. And so, um, we, we tend to view ourselves in the very same lens um, that um, deceived 
our, our first parents that uh, appears in the garden, Adam and Eve are um, subduced by the serpent who fell first in the same um, choice, which is this, presented, um, you're, you are worthy. You, you, God is withholding something from you and you can take that for yourself and equality with God is something you can hold. Your, your name is worthy. And you can make a name for yourself if you do whatever. And so this, this lie is something that creeps into our hearts, into every area of our lives. And it's one um, that, that uh, comes out in, in nearly everything we do. And we usually just call it pride or self-righteousness or something like that. But um, the reality is that it bears a lot of unhappiness in our lives. And the reason it bears on happiness is because even though the promise is there, that you can, you're worthy, you, you can hold um, some position next to God, you can't. And you, because you fail constantly. And so when you hope in yourself and you promote yourself and you try to grab for power and you try to grab for worthiness, um, you ultimately fail. And um, before uh, I launch too quickly into, into this, there is a... A passage uh, of scripture that very closely overlays um, the argument that Peter makes here. And it comes in John chapter 5. And so um, if you want to flip over there, you can. It's John chapter 5. And um, in, uh, in John 5, Jesus is uh, sparring sort of verbally with um, the Pharisees. And he's, he's got a lot of issues. He spared no um, wrath on uh, who they were, and how they acted. But I'm starting in verse uh, 41. I want you to hear um, what Jesus has to say about our seeking glory, or our seeking um, honor or worth for our own names. Now, Jesus is saying, even if uh, he came and declared who he was and said, I'm the son of God, um, his testimony as a man wouldn't be enough. And he says, but, but that's not all I have. I have the testimony of the works that I do. And, and those are from the Father. And uh, he says, but essentially, you, you, don't believe, you don't believe in me. Now, um, in verse uh, 41, he says, Jesus, I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. But if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Um, so Jesus here uh, does a couple things. He's, he's making a contrast, first of all, in the fact that he, he hasn't come to do his own will. This is always what he's saying. I, I've not done the works uh, that I choose to do. I do whatever the Father speaks to me. I've not spoken on my own behalf. I, I say whatever the Father tells me to say. So he's, he's saying, I'm representing uh, the Father. I've not come on my own. And um, I've come in the Father's name, but you don't, don't receive me. But he says, if another comes in his own name, you would receive him. And, and there it goes, the reality that um, we, we afford much more respect um, for man's claims to being someone. Man's claims to, to honor or authority. And he says this now in verse 44, the, the, uh, the crux of the argument. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He says, essentially this, it is impossible for you to express belief, or if you want to say faith there, it's impossible to express faith while you receive glory from other people, while you are seeking affirmation and honor and worth from other things. Why? Because you can't accept that and also be putting your faith and worth and honor in God himself. 
And the only way that you receive any kind of real, true, lasting worth and glory and honor is when it comes from the Father, not from each other. Well, this is essentially the essence of who the Pharisees were. When Jesus rebuked them, um, he had a lot to say. He says, well, everything that you do, you do for the praise of other people. When you pray, you pray in public and you pray loudly so that other people know how righteous and holy you are. And when you give, you give with a lot of fanfare so that everybody sees how much you give. And you practice everything that you do for the sake of others. And in Matthew 5, he says, uh, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware if you practice your righteousness before others and you seek the affirmation and the applause of man because um, you'll receive that, but that's all that you'll receive. Right? You, you can um, acquire that, but that's all you're going to get. Uh, unless you don't like my paraphrase, let me read it directly. Uh, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, don't lose the plot here. Practicing your, your righteousness is, in essence, carrying around the UV light. Okay? It's owning the UV light without it meaning anything. And this is the problem of the Pharisees. They practice the righteousness and they miss the point of the righteousness. This is what Jesus says. You practice all of these itsy-bitsy matters of the law and you neglect the point of the law, which was to bring you to surrender, to bring you to the point of realizing that the law doesn't fulfill righteousness, right? So they miss the whole point, fulfill all the intense parts of it, and, uh, and so they miss the entire plot. And um, this is effectively what's... Uh, the condition, if you will, of the council. They've convened the council. Remember, it's made up, um, at this point, the high priest is a Sadducee, and sort of his crew, his inner circle, are all Sadducees, and uh, they don't believe in anything supernatural, right? And then um, the rest of the, the Senate, if you will, the, the high council, is made up of Pharisees. Um, the, these exact same Pharisees who Jesus were rebuking for this problem. And so you can see sort of the condition that they're in. And... Um, they themselves are claiming to be someone. Why do I know that? Well, because if you look at the, the whole source of this, this uh, conflict, I pointed it out the last uh, two or three weeks, it's not just about the fact that the disciples are preaching in the name of Jesus and there's a religious problem. It's the fact that they're jealous of what's happened. In verse 17, it says, the party of the Sadducees, filled with jealousy, arrested the apostles. They're upset about the loss of respect and honor and worth and their names decreasing in the name of Jesus increasing. Do you see this? Okay? So, the argument that Peter puts forth here is when they've been set before the council, they remind them, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet you filled Jerusalem with this teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. And this is exactly what they had asked for when Jesus was being crucified. I remind you again, they said, let his blood be on us and on our children, give us Barabbas, and they shouted, crucify him. So Peter's response is this, we must obey God rather than men. We teased that out last week, though come an application here. Then he says, the God of our fathers, he raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. And he uses that specific phrase so that he would jog their memories of Deuteronomy 20, which says that cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. That, that Jesus suffered the curse and, uh, at their hands. Well, why, why does this become important? Well, because the response to this is not that Jesus then did something for himself, but that God did something for Jesus. What does he do? God exalted him at his right hand. 
He puts him in the place of honor. He puts him in the place of power. He, he, he's, um, it's not just that he raised him to life. It's that he raised him as Lord and Savior. Okay? And th- there's two words there. Um, you might have different translations. And uh, they, they probably all apply because somewhere in the meaning of the word uh, is probably going to going to work. So look, it says leader and savior in the ESV. You might have prince or you might have author there. Um, he, he's put him in these two positions and uh, because of that, um, Jesus is in the position of dispensing something uh, that they think that they can grab for themselves. So far from placing um, the power and the authority in the hands of men, it's specifically placed in the hands of Christ. And um, this, this idea of Jesus as the, the, the prince or the leader uh, is important. It's, it's the idea of being the pioneer. It's, uh, it's sort of a favorite little phrase in Hebrews. Um, you see it in Hebrews chapter uh, 2, and it appears in uh, chapter 12, where he says that, that uh, Jesus is the, the author and finisher of our faith. Have you used a familiar phrase? Okay, the, the point is, is that um, he leads the way. He, he doesn't just lead the way in that he's the first in being risen from the dead, but that he establishes the path in which we must follow, right? He, he establishes the way in which we will go, but um, he's not just the one that establishes the path, but he's the one that has also completed the path and laid the path. And so it extends um, salvation both backwards and forwards. And here's uh, the important part of that. Because it's not just limited to this one little moment in time where you get to do one thing and then that's the end of it. It's establishing that the journey has, has been rooted way back here. It's been authored all the way to completion and that Jesus is the one that's authoritative over that, that said path that's been laid. And so um, the, the reality here is that he, he's um, declared that Jesus is is king. He's, he's been exalted to the right hand. So he's putting him in the place of power. He says he's the author and he's established the road backwards and forwards. And then he also says then he's the savior. So if he's king, then that means mean that he, he's in charge and he can rule. And if he's the author, then he's the one that establishes the plan and the way. And if he's the savior, that must mean I'm in need of saving. And uh, that, that pulls all of the weight of worth and honor and glory out of the hands of religious people. Because religious people like to hold firm and plant their feet on the stuff that they've done. So they can prove their worth and their religiousness. This is how I got from point A to point B. But if Jesus is the one that establishes A and B and C and all the way to Z, right? Then, then you're, you're, it's not about that. It's whether or not you're following the path that has been laid that establishes whether or not you are saved. So, he says, um, Jesus is in this position of power, and he's taken the initiative for the kingdom uh, away from them, and he's placed it firmly in, in, in Jesus' hands. And what he, he says here uh, is important. In verse uh, 31, look carefully. After he declares him leader and savior, he says, to give repentance to Israel, and to give forgiveness of sins. Notice the direction is not that Israel needs to choose to repent. And uh, this this, uh, contradicts most of the ways um, that we think about what we do to respond to God. If repentance is the essence or the first step of of expressing faith, it says here that that's something that's given to you. It's it's granted to you to repent. Now that's that's a um, that vacates your account 
of anything that you can point to to say, I, I had a hand in saving myself. Do you see this? That's really important. He's taken all of the power. He's put it in Jesus' hands. He's done all of this so that he can grant or give repentance to Israel. So the direction is not Israel to God. It's God to Israel. Calling them back to himself. Equipping them. Giving them the means to respond in the way that God wants them to. So Jesus is in the position of power. He's granting them the response to them. And he's giving them the means to do so. Well, how has he done that? Well, it's not just in Peter's declaration here, but it's all that he's done to, um, to witness to the truth of everything that Peter just said, which is that Jesus is the Christ. He is the chosen one, he is the king, he is the author, and he is the finish, and he is the salvation. So here he is. They, they hear this, and they're enraged, and they want to kill him. Um, if you look at that, that enraged, it, um, it literally means they were, they were sawn in two. Okay, now uh, this is uh, an important idea. So the first time at Pentecost, um, after Peter gives this very pointed um, presentation of how they had had a hand in crucifying Christ, and it says they're pierced to the heart, right? And, uh, and they respond. They said, what must we do? And then G Peter answers, repent, believe, right? This promise is for you and all your children, those who are far off. Um, but here it says, as Peter presents the same thing, you hung him on a tree, but now he's risen, exalted, all of those things. This is their sawn in half. They're upset and they're exposed and they're laid bare and for who they truly are. Okay? And this is uh, the reality of every true gospel presentation. It does not always respond in the positive uh, repentance, sometimes it responds in the, the positive hardening and the, the, the pushing away. But lest you think that's the final word, if you look in the next chapter, it says that many priests uh, became obedient to the faith. This, this bears fruit, although not initially. So this is important, okay? So, so P Peter does not spare any niceties with him. He just lays it out as is. He, you hung him on a tree, the gods place them in the position of power in their rage and they want to kill him. But here's the Pharisee uh, of the council named Gamaliel. And, um, oh, I push, put a pin in that. We'll come back. First of all, Peter says, importantly, we're witnesses to these things. And so too is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Um, there is, uh, there's a couple things happening in, in that statement. First is this. Remember, Remember who he's talking to, someone that doesn't believe in the supernatural. So just the very expression, the Holy Spirit, you've already violated this, this uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, you've already violated his worldview, right? Now, put, put right behind that the reality that he threw them in jail, and uh, an angel of the Lord, supernatural, comes and helps them escape overnight. And uh, they're sort of bewildered by this. They, they don't know what the end of these things will be, remember? And uh, so here it is. Peter, and you can just kind of visualize it in your head as their eyes lock. And Peter goes, whom the Holy Spirit has given. And uh, it's just this awkward moment where he's, he's grading the reality of what God is doing in the Holy Spirit. And against the, the worldview of this man. And... Um, he doesn't ask how they, how they had escaped. It's implied here in the fact um, that Peter is, um, is highlighting the Holy Spirit. And he also says he identifies himself in an important position here. We are witnesses to these things. Um, 
we need to recognize the, the important calling of being a witness and the limitations of what a witness is. Um, if you uh, are called as a witness in a trial, your job is to show up and to do one thing, to speak what it is that you have seen, heard, to affirm what actually occurred, right? If you show up as a witness and you begin to argue the case, you, you've gone beyond your role as a witness. Um, if you were to back up uh, all the way, beginning Acts chapter 1, Jesus promises that they will be, he says, you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. When, I, when the Holy Spirit comes, then you'll be my witnesses. When you're equipped with this power, that's when you'll be um, ready to do this very specific role. Now, it's a real, we, we play a real part. There's, there's something real to that, but it's not um, so much that it's about us. And um, that's the important limitation on it. And um, the Holy Spirit is given to uh, all of those who obey him. And so uh, the Spirit is needed. So, so just as Jesus said in, in John 5, my testimony as a man is not enough. It's, it's, if I declare I'm the son of God and there's no other credibility, there's no other witnesses to that, that testimony isn't enough. If Jesus said that about himself, your testimony is not greater than the testimony of Jesus, is it? No. He, Jesus, right after that, talks about how John had come and he bore witness. And he even calls John this shining light. And they were willing to listen to the light for a little while. But when Jesus came, they didn't want to listen. Well, he did all of these things. And the fact that he's doing the works of the Father, the, that bore witness. When he's baptized, the, the voice of the Father also bears witness. The Holy Spirit is bearing witness, not just to who Jesus is, but also to the fact that we are people who belong to Jesus. Romans 8, chapter 14, says that all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Those, those who belong to God are those who are led by the Spirit. And um, so, uh, important, important to line a couple things up here, and then we'll move on. It's when, when Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come, he told them not to do anything until it happened because they needed the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Holy Spirit uh, to, to, do, to be equipped to do what they would do. But he says uh, in John chapter 16, Jesus says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will glorify me. He will glorify me. The work of the Spirit is to point to Christ. The work of the witness is to tell what's true. The work of the witness with the Holy Spirit is to tell what is true and pointing to Christ. Do you see how I married those together? Okay? So that if you have the Holy Spirit and you're being a witness, then you should be pointing to Christ, not to yourself. Okay? Now you're like, well, I don't, I don't point to myself. I hope so. But there's also an important other distinctions in there uh, of being led by the Holy Spirit. And uh, we won't dive all the way into those today. But look here at uh, Gamaliel's council. And to the Pharisees in their, or to the council um, as they respond to this in uh, verse 34. But a council, uh, but, but a Pharisee of the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood and he gave orders to put him outside. So he says, put him outside. And then he begins to remind them um, about some previous occurrences. He says, uh, in the days before these, Theodos rose up. There's this uprising. Um, 
there's other uh, history around this. It doesn't particularly matter who this guy is, but he, he gives two examples of people who rose up claiming to be somebody, claiming to have some authority, claiming to have some right to lead others. And, and uh, you need to know that both the times where it says in, uh, I think it's verse 36, and then um, again in 37, he talks about those who followed these two leaders that rose up. One was Judas and one was Theodos. Um, that word followed is the same, same word obeyed. They obeyed. And that should hopefully jingle a little bell in your mind about the Romans 13 and the difference between obeying and, and being subject to. What, what they did is these men rose up and they declared for themselves some sense of authority, some sense of pow power and honor. And those um, who gave their allegiance, their obedience to these men, followed them. And now Gamaliel's pointing them out as negative examples uh, of things that came to nothing. And so he says, look, I tell you in the present case, look at 38. I tell you in the present case, keep away from these men. Let them alone. If this is the plan or the undertaking of men, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And you might even be found opposing God. Um, now, at like first blush, this, this, this sounds like good, wise counsel. And it, is, it has just enough spiritual information to sound that way, but at its core, it is humanist pragmatism on display. It is, um, let me tease that out. Why, why do I say that? So he uses these examples of people that rose up and, and they had people following them. But he says, you know, once, once those uprisings were put down, all of their followers dispersed. Now he says, here's how we measure whether or not this thing is of God. We just let it be. And um, if, it, if it's a man, it'll come to nothing. Um, that is not categorically true. If it's a man, it could come to something. Um, just look at uh, any number of false religions or cults or political powers. We can, we can force our way to, quote-unquote, success in the realm of men. Can we not? We, we can. And, and so he, he's using this measurement that is in, in, uh, entirely based in the logic of, of man. Well, if it comes to nothing, according to man, then it, it must be of man. But if it's of God, then you'll, you'll not be able to, to stop it or overthrow it. Now, that's true enough. Um, if, if it is of God, there's, there's nothing that you can do. And um, so, so what do we do with um, this counsel? Well, um, a few things. There's... Um, there's like a, a counterpunch here that we need to acknowledge. So in the previous examples of authority, these were men rising up to do something. And the fact that they died and everybody was dispersed afterward points to the fact that it was based on um, the authority of this individual. But um, Jesus did not uh, ever intentionally struggle over uh, a, a man-made kingdom. He, he never came and, and said... Even though this is, this is mine by right or power, he, he explicitly went about avoiding that. He, uh, he's saying this, his kingdom's not of this world. Jesus uh, does not need the power of political power or sway over, over others. Now, hear me carefully. If Jesus did not need it, neither do you. Now, when you, when you count yourself down and out or that... Uh, 
that you see, you, you sort of observe the world and, it, and the world's beating you, right? And somehow man is succeeding uh, allegedly against the, the wise counsel of Gamaliel. You need to understand that it's not doing anything different than exactly what Jesus put in place. And that all the real power and authority, the power and authority that we're actually supposed to worry about is, is given to Jesus. Because he, he declares it so in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth, it's mine. This is the grounds for you to go and do. So, um, importantly, Jesus' uh, reign and his rule is not of, the, of the, the realm of men. It's not in political authority. It's not even in, quote-unquote, religious authorities. It's also noteworthy that Jesus, is, um, Jesus acquires this after his death, um, not before it, and loses it at death. So because Jesus dies uh, as in his resurrected to power and now lives forevermore, he's given that authority. He'll never lose it. He'll never give it up. It never goes to another. So God authenticated Jesus in choosing him and raising him up, making him king and savior. And the Holy Spirit is now a witness to that. It's a witness to it in the acts that the apostles are doing, in the power that they're invested with, in the words that they're speaking. All of this is by the work of the Holy Spirit. You have real participation in that. You have real role to play. But listen, being led by the Spirit means that you, you play this role and you fulfill it in the place and the times and the ways that God has purposed for you. The, the witness does not show up to whatever courtroom they decide, on whatever date they choose, whatever time they want. They come when they're summoned. And they go when they're called. Because you must, right? And I tried to uh, make this same point when, it tell, when the apostles are told to go and stand and speak in, in the place where you've been stood, right? Remember, remember that? It's, it's the same effect here. God has a purpose for you to bring him glory. And uh, none of this happens according to our wisdom or our planning. And this is where good intentions and somewhat malicious intentions can overlap but have the same effect. Good intentions and, and wrong intentions can overlap but, but really produce the same fruit. Some people um, with the best of intentions want to plan ahead for the Holy Spirit. And tell him exactly where he could best use you. And so you run ahead. And then you write this check. And you want the Holy Spirit to cash that check. Because after all, God has promised that the Holy Spirit will never leave you and forsake you. And he's yours. And he'll be your strength. And all, right? all of the promises of the Holy Spirit. And here you are, still running your own plan. Not being led by the Spirit. Here you are, not following God, but carrying him with you. Does this, does this, am I making a clean distinction here that you can see? Mm. <laughs> you want to, you, it is right to want to bear witness for God, but in the ways and the places that God has not purposed or designed for you to do so is no different than not doing it at all. Disobedience is disobedience whether it's rooted in a, a good intention or not. As they say, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Right? Ooh, there was not as much conviction in that as I was hoping. And I think that's because we know it's true. When you're a witness, you, you must appear 
where God chooses and how he chooses. And um, we, have, we have problems with this both ways. I think uh, I want to cover both of these because they're both important. There are people to, who are called to witness. You know that you are. It's, it's your role. That's what it means to be a disciple. You have this, this role to play in the kingdom. Um, but people that are afraid to witness at all, and so they, they sort of do nothing. They sit on the sidelines and they say, well, it's, if, if it's um, under the religious language of, well, when the Holy Spirit leads, then I will. Or you leave it all up to the Holy Spirit and there's no you, right? That's not being led by the Holy Spirit. Um, that's just either laziness or, or fear. And, uh, and that's not okay. So, so, so that's one way that we err. And, and then the other is um, you, uh, you, you run out ahead and, and you do something and uh, you, you expect God to, to cash that check. And um, here's, what, uh, here's where I want to land this morning. If you follow God in faith and, and you declare that that's true, that Jesus is Lord, he's Savior, he's leader, all of those things, that, that that faith has to bear out somewhere in, in the reality. And, uh, and here's where I think we struggle the most. It's not in the... There's an element of fear that keeps us from witnessing as much as we ought to. It's, it's more in the... We meet... Um, with the logic of Gamaliel. And, and we assume it to be true. We, we look at the logic of the Pharisees and say, if, if this was of God, it would be easier. If this was of God, then I, it wouldn't come, come to ruin. It wouldn't fail. And so when we meet failure, we meet ruin, we meet hard times, we meet difficulties. Um, we just assume that it's not of God, ex- excluding the reality that um, that's exactly where, where God has placed the apostles in this exact case. Now, it's true that what it is that uh, the authorities are trying to do will not completely be able to, to end what the apostles uh, are carrying, but that doesn't negate the fact that, uh, that we might meet times of difficulty, we meet, might meet times of ruin. So you can't look at the success of man or the failure of man and conclude anything about the reality that underlies that. The only, the only way you can really know anything is whether or not faith underlies that. I think we, we most often, um, we don't fear the failure of God. We fear failure with our name on it. So I, I, can, t- I can tell that maybe you don't relate to that as much as I do. So, so let me tell you how I think this works out in my life and maybe then you'll be able to see it better in yours. If for whatever reason, this, our, our church grew not, not in number at all and we met here faithfully for however long God has us and eventually, the funds run out, and, and we do whatever we can. We meet, and the church were to shut down. And, uh, and, and, and that happens. Is that, is, did I fail? In, in my estimation, I would feel very much like a failure. 
But I don't carry that. I don't control that. And neither do you. Do you understand that in your own life? I, 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 I struggle that you do. We fear having our name on failure. Look at, look at the response of the apostles after failure. Called before the council, imprisoned, set free from prison, re-sort of captured, interrogated, commanded again not to preach, and then beaten fiercely. I mean, by all measurements, that's failure. And they're happy to associate their name. They're counted worthy to be associated with the failure in men's eyes. Do you, do you see that? Now, the reason why I think we tend not to attempt things in faith for God is because we think that if it doesn't work out, we're going to look bad. You, you, that, <laughs> that never got out of the chute because your trust was not in God anyway. The reason why, because you were always, it was always either going to succeed or fail if man was behind it. If you could give enough, if you could do enough, or if you couldn't do enough. And that's why ultimately that failure seems to rest on your shoulders. Does that make, is that making sense? Yes. <laughs> God has called you to far more um, than, than you live out and I live out. We, we come short daily. Listen, that's, that's not an excuse to never step out. Sometimes God's purposes require us to, to embrace failure so that we can see success. S stop trying to win all of the battles. Stop trying to, to, to focus God's attention on something that he, he's not going to fix for you. Our, our role, our goal is not to change everybody by, by wielding the kind of authority and power that they will respect coming in our own name, claiming to be someone. It will come when, when we bear witness to the one who has the authority and power. And that, that requires both courage and ultimately uh, ultimate humility. Death of you. You must die and decrease and your kingdom must go that Christ's kingdom may come. This is, this is what is underneath true faithfulness. So listen. What, what I want for us and what I want in, in my life and for this church is to, to stop hearing the truths of Scripture and putting them in your pocket and then walking the same direction you've been walking. I, I don't care if you're old or if you're young, if you're retired, if you're working 10 jobs. I don't care if you're online right now. Okay? Your faithfulness is not tapering off your, your duty to the Lord to bear witness regardless of where you are, what you're doing, whatever season he has you in, whatever condition you find yourself. To reduce your name and your kingdom and your power and, and focus on him.
that he might have the victory. Father, please help us. To not walk away affirming a truth about you without it changing us. These are inconvenient truths. We, we want things, we, we want things to go 